I will say that I'm, I'm probably not too dependent on flip charts, but I'm not going to lie. I love a whiteboard, right? When I teach, I love to draw on the whiteboard, and, and I do it on Wednesday nights sometimes. I, I did it all the time when I taught high school, and, uh, and it's just, I don't know, there's something about being able to draw on that whiteboard and really kind of diagram things. I'm terrible at drawing, I'm terrible at writing, but for some reason I just do it all the time on the whiteboard in any classroom that I'm in. I utilize those things. And so when I was teaching high school several years ago, um, we got news that our county, the county that I was teaching, received this grant that all of the new, or excuse me, all science teachers and all math teachers were going to get one of these brand new interactive whiteboards. All right? Now, it wasn't quite as... As, as what you saw, because this was several years ago. Like, they, we couldn't interact with each other, and, like, we weren't video, and we weren't meeting with each other that, that way. But they really did want us to use these interactive whiteboards to uh, really kind of enhance our lessons and enhance our student learning and really kind of enhance the activity for our students. And so they made this announcement that all the science teachers and all the math teachers were going to get these interactive whiteboards. Now, if you've ever been around the teachers when something new comes around, some of them are just gung-ho and all excited about it, all right? And then there are some, they're like, mm-mm, I ain't doing it. It just ain't happening, all right? And then there's some that are kind of like in between. They're like, I'm a little excited about this, but I just don't know how this is going to work out. I don't know how this is going to fit with what I'm used to. And I'm, I'm excited, but I'm also comfortable. And so you're really going to have to convince me to, to come to this new interactive whiteboard when my really whiteboard is just fine. All right? and, and so they, they spent all this time and all this money uh, convincing us of this. And so we had to, all this training we got to go to. And we got to go to all these workshops. And they even gave us um, work days. We didn't have students. Like everybody else has students. And we got to go sit in the county office and like, get together and have group work. And we were the students. And, like, we had to come up with lessons. And we had to come up with games. And we had to come up with all these different ideas and how we could utilize these in our classroom. And these are all the science teachers from the whole county doing this. So the goal was that, all right, I'm going to come up with a lesson and a game for, for my class, but you're going to be able to take that same lesson and that same game, pop it into your uh, interactive whiteboard, and boom, you can do the exact same thing in your classroom. Right? So there were some of us that were excited. There were some of us that were kind of on the fence, and there were some that were really like, no, I don't like this. I'm just going to keep using my whiteboard, and I'm just going to use it until I retire or die, whichever one comes first, okay? And so we always knew the interactive whiteboards were coming, we just didn't know when they were coming. And so then the county, and I won't mention which county it is, but it, I love this county, I'm just be honest with you, but they pulled this really kind of stealth mission on us because we left for, and I don't remember if it was, it was spring break or if it was Christmas break, one of those two, but we left for break. And when we came back, the interactive whiteboards had been installed, all right? Surprise, your whole world just changed. And, and you would think it wouldn't be that big of a deal because you still had your whiteboard. Wrong. They took your whiteboard with them when they brought the interactive whiteboard. It really was out with the old and in with the new. And, and so what they were telling us is, listen, you really, you really don't have a choice. You really don't have a chance to stay comfortable in the way you've been doing things. Really, that is gone, and you need to adjust to what is new and what is here and what is present. And this is the new way that you're going to do this. And, and whether that was a good way or not a good way to do that, I'll leave you to decide that. But as we get into Hebrews chapter 7 and finish up chapter 7 and, verse eight, and chapter 8, um, we're, we see kind of the same idea that, that the writer of Hebrews really is telling us that you've been in this system for a really long time. You're, you're comfortable in this system, but now there's a new system. 
Now there's a new covenant. Now there's a new way that God is interacting with people. And your old system is not going to work anymore. The way you've been doing it is not going to work anymore. And I know it may be a little uncomfortable, but you really do need to embrace this because the old system is gone. It's gone now. It wasn't gone when he wrote this, but it was going to be gone pretty soon. And so he's telling them, you've got to make this adjustment. So I want you to pick up with me in Hebrews chapter 7. This is going to be kind of a long text for us this morning, because if you were here last week, or you watched last week, you know that I didn't get through all my points, okay? And so we're going to, we're going to fold those into it, and, and again, we're going to get through this. So chapter 7, we're going to start in verse 26, and we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 8, which is through verse 13. And it's going to be a long text for us, but we're going to work it through, um, and, and we're going to jump back and forth between these two chapters. So chapter 7, verse 23, says, excuse me, now many have been, or no, sorry, 26, not 23. Verse 26. Um, For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. First for their own sins, and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. Chapter 8, verse 1 starts off, says, Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle that was set up by God and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those who are offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warning when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted for on a better promises. Verse 7. For this is the first, or excuse me, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not be an, or there would be no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he said, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day that I I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And every person, or, yeah, and every person will not teach his fellow citizens, and each of his brothers saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoings, and I will never again remember their sins. And finally, verse 13. By saying a new covenant, he is declaring that the first is old, and what is old and aging is about to disappear. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for who you are. God, I pray this morning that we are overwhelmed by who you are. 
I pray that we are overwhelmed by your grace. I pray that we are overwhelmed by your mercy. God, I pray that we are overwhelmed at how wonderful and how glorious you are. And God, I pray that as we sing that song, it wasn't just songs, it wasn't just words on a screen, but God, it really was the reflection of our heart this morning. And so, God, I pray that as you speak to us through your text, as you can again show us this new way, this better way, God, that we won't be tempted to cling to what we've been trying to do in the past. We won't be tempted to, to cling to and hold on to a system that has failed us over and over and over again. God, to this system that's become mundane and out of date. God, that we will cling to you instead. And so, Father, I pray in this time that we have together, you will use your text and you will speak to our hearts. And God, I pray that we are students ready to hear your words this morning, Father. So, God, I pray that you speak. I pray that with our hearts, you will write on. I pray that our minds, that you will write your law into it. So, God, we will leave here knowing just how wonderful and how great and how merciful you are, Father. God, let us leave here having accepted what it is that you have to offer us this morning, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I don't know about your household, but my household, I'm going to be honest with you, there's, there's a few mysteries in my house that I cannot figure out. There, there's some things that tend to happen, and I just, I, I just cannot figure out how they happen or how nobody knows how they happen, all right? So let me give you an example uh, of one of the mysteries that happens in our house. Sometimes um, our, our three kids will be in the living room, and, and there'll be stuff just all over the floor, all right? And maybe it's even like a drink that's spilled on the floor, or maybe it's like just toys that are all over the floor. Uh, and, and April and I will come around to the corner, and we'll walk in, and we're like, whoa, what in the world happened here? And all three of our kids will be like, what are you talking about? And I don't know how this happened. And honestly, when they look at you and say, what are you talking about? And you're like, look at all this. Like, how did, how did all this happen? And they're just like, I don't know. And so the only thing I can conclude is that while they were sitting in this room, there were these trolls or, 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 or leprechauns or some kind of magical creature that came into our house and, and created this chaos that went everywhere. And nobody saw any of it happen. Because nobody knows how it happened. Right? Again, again, I don't know if that happens in your house, but it happens in our house sometimes. There's another mystery that I just, I just can't figure out this either. Maybe you can help me with it. But I, I, do, um, I, I tend to do the dishes. I don't do them all the time, but I do the dishes sometimes at our house. And, and, and this is a mystery to me. Because I can do the dishes either at night before I go to bed, or I can do them in the morning before I, I leave for work. And then here's the mystery. I'll leave the house, and if I'm gone for more than two hours, somehow, magically, all those dishes that I got out and I washed and I rinsed and, and dried and I put them away, in two hours' time, every one of them is back in that sink again. Like, I don't know how in two hours, like, I didn't even miss a meal being out of the house in two hours, but snack time, somehow, we used every fork in the house in that two-hour time span. I don't know how this happens, all right? And maybe you do, um, and, and maybe you've got some insight to me, but I'll be honest with you, it's not just me. My wife has the same problem with our laundry hamper, right? Our laundry hamper has the same issue that, like, she'll do all the laundry in the whole house, and I'm convinced, like, every stitch of clothing that we own is completely clean, and then she will literally, like, turn around and boom it's half full again 
Like, I wish my bank account had this much amazing ability, but it doesn't. But for some reason, there's these mysteries that happen in our house, these things that, that we just have to keep doing over and over and over again. And, and the, the sad part about it is when you have a task that you have to do over and over and over again, it becomes really unsatisfying, if you will. Like, I, I don't wash the dishes anymore with this great sense of accomplishment. Be like, yes. It's finished. Like there's some things when you finish, you're, you're excited about and you're like, yes, I've really done something. Like if I clean out the garage, like that's a sense of accomplishment right there. All right. If I do something, that's huge. And that's a simple accomplishment. When I wash dishes, I don't feel that same way because you know what? I know that I'm going to turn around and there's going to be 14 forks back in the same place they just were. Uh, there's going to be all these dishes, and this task is never going to end. It's just going to keep repeating itself over and over and over. And for you, maybe it's not washing dishes, maybe it's not laundry, but for you, maybe there is some task that, that you just keep doing over and over again, and it just keeps going, and, and, and you wake up tomorrow, and it's there. And you do it, and then the next day you wake up, and it's there. And you do it, and you wake up the next day, and it's there. And it's like we really are living in this movie Groundhog's Day, except we don't get to even change it, right? We just keep doing the same thing over and over and over, day in and day out. And, and so even when you finish it, there's not this satisfaction of like, yes, it's done it's just like, oh, all right, well, we'll wait till tomorrow, and then we'll do it all over again. You see, for some of the Jews living in the first century, that's how they were feeling, but not about their dishes and not about their laundry. That's how they felt about their relationship with God. That's how some of them were feeling about this religion. For so long, they have been doing the same thing over and over and over. Literally for thousands of years, they have been doing this, and their ancestors were doing this. And for some of them personally, they have been seeing so many sacrifices, talking and interacting with so many priests, that they, there was no wow factor to it anymore. In fact, it didn't even have any significance to them anymore. And they kept doing this same thing over and over and over. And so we, we read the, the Old Testament and we read about these sacrifices and we try to put ourselves in those places. And we're like, man, that must have been like almost a life-changing experience for that moment. Except the problem is for those Jews living in the first century, that moment was just like that moment yesterday. And it was just like it the moment two days ago. And guess what? When they wake up tomorrow, it's going to be just like the moment tomorrow. And the moment after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, it was never going to change for them. It was just going to be the same thing over and over and over. And all this familiarity kind of left them with this idea of like, this is really, this is really not satisfying what we're longing for. This is really not satisfying the desire of our heart. And, and so even though we're wanting something new, even though we're wanting this new something superior and something different, we're going to cling to this because this is what we know. This is what we're familiar with. And we're just not ready to branch out. Or maybe we have branched out and we, we've heard about this guy named Jesus. And we're just, we're just going to hang out here for a little while longer because this is where we're at. You see, part of the reason the author of the book of Hebrews writes this book is to point to them to the superior ministry of Jesus. Right? There, there's 13 chapters 
in this book. And, and we've talked about that. And at least four of these chapters here, right in this middle section, deal with this ministry of Jesus, this priesthood of Jesus. And he's driving this point home so deep and so hard that, that listen, what you need to understand is that you've come to Christ. And so when you come to Christ, you don't need to hold on to this old system anymore. You don't need to hold on to this old religion. You don't need the old priesthood and you don't need the old sacrifices. And so we've read chapter after chapter after chapter. And I'm going to be honest with you, he doesn't stop here. He keeps going into chapter 9 that you need this new system. That Christ has this superior ministry of anything in the Old Testament, any of the Old Testament priests. And for you and me, it's not the priest. For some of us, it's just this relationship, these things we've been trying to do to get to God. And he says, listen, all you need is Jesus. That's it. You don't need to try all this other stuff. You don't need to hang out in the familiar. You just need Jesus because His ministry is superior to anything else that you've tried and anything else that you even thought about. And so as we get to the last part of chapter 7, the first part of chapter 8, He gives us these two reasons of why the ministry of Jesus is far superior to the Old Testament priest. Why it is greater and why it is better. And the first reason He gives us is because Christ has a better seed than any of the priests of Israel. Right? Now, we've been talking about this for several chapters. And, and like I said, we started in chapter 4 talking about the priests. And, and just this kind of inside joke. Miss Carrie's not here this morning, but she's watching online, I'm sure, because she always does when she's not here. Uh, but we have kind of joked this past several weeks because we've been talking about the priesthood of Jesus. And every week we're like, all right, so what kind of image can we use and still talk about the same thing? Like we're running out of priest pictures is what we're doing. So I'm kind of glad we're coming to the end of this topic. Uh, but he drives this point home because what he tells us... He He's really going to sum this up. I'm going to give you the, the, the sum total of this. And, and all I've been talking about the last four chapters, in verse 27, he really kind of sums this idea up. Of uh, There is this summary. There is this new priest. And really, when you compare the priest of Jesus to the priest of Israel, there's really no comparison. And so in verse 27, he says, We don't need, or he doesn't need, to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered himself. You see, the job of the Jewish priest was never done. It's like the job of a mom. It never ends. It's like a laundry hamper that never runs dry. It's a dirty dish sink that never gets emptied. And as soon as you think it's emptied, boom, there's something else there. It is always happening. And the reason that job never ends is because there is sin that never ends. The, the sacrifices that they offered were only one dimensional and one directional. They were only offering a sacrifice for things that had already happened. They couldn't offer sacrifices for future things. They couldn't offer sacrifices for what's happening now. They could only offer a sacrifice for what happened in the past. And so whatever sacrifice you brought to the priest only covered what you had already done. And so you were good as long as you were standing there with the priest and he was sacrificed. But the moment you turned and walked away, the moment you walked away from that altar, and the moment you sinned again, then the, the new sin required a new sacrifice. And so as long as there was sin, there was always something for the priest to be doing. There was always work for the priest to be done. And while some of this sounds like great job security, right? Like everybody says that you're always going to need this priest. That's great for job security, but it's terribly inefficient. It's, terribly in, it's terrible in its effectiveness because what they're doing is over and over and over the same thing without the desired results. 
And I don't know who said it. Sometimes people credit to Einstein is this idea of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. But that's exactly what the priests were doing. They were doing the same thing over and over again with, with, with the same results. And they just thought that maybe it would make a difference. And see, with Jesus, they don't expect a difference. There is a difference with Jesus. In chapter 8, verse 1, the author points out this huge difference. In verse, or verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, Now the main point of what is being said is this. Right? So, so we could have honestly skipped four chapters if we just came here. This is the Cliff Notes version of what he's been telling you for the last four chapters. But honestly, I, I think we'd have missed some good stuff if we did that. So I'm, I'm glad we didn't do that. Right? So the summary of this. Here's what I've been telling you the all, all along. We have this kind of high priest. The highest priest that we needed back in verse 26, and I don't have it on the side, but the high priest that we needed that was holy and innocent and undefiled and separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, guess what? We got him. We have this kind of high priest, all right? And who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. We have this high priest who sat down. And those two words of he sat down, down. I guess those are three words. This is huge. Right? And, and I want to show you why this is such a huge statement. But to do that, I'm going to be honest with you. We're going to have to peel back a few layers. This is a little bit of onion treasure right here. That, that This is a nugget we're going to have to dig into because there's, there's some layers to this idea of him sitting down and why this is so significant. And so I hope you, maybe you jot these down, but man, this is, this is good stuff. He sits down because to be seated is a position of relaxing. And when he sits down, it means that he can relax because all the work is done. You see, we talked about it just a moment ago that the work of the priest in Israel was never done because there was always a new sin that needed atoning for. There was always a new sin that needed a new sacrifice. There was always a new sin that came up. And whether it was his sin or the sin of somebody else's, it always had to be dealt with. And, and so the, the priest of Israel could never sit down because their work was never done. They never had an opportunity to rest. You can read through the whole Old Testament and you never find an instruction. Now, you do find some of them sitting down, okay? But there's not instructions for them to sit down. Why? Because their work is never finished. So what's the significance of Christ sitting down? It is finished. The work is is done. And hopefully you were here last week when we really drilled this point home um, in chapter 7, that, that when he did what he did, it was all finished. His sacrifice was complete. And so if you remember, we, we said back in verse 27 that when he did this once for all, when he offered himself, his finished work, his sacrifice is sufficient. It covers all sins. Hear this, that the priests of Israel could only cover sins in the past, but the sufficient sacrifice of Christ covers all sins. It covers everything I did from this point backwards. It covers the sins I am committing right now. And it covers every sin that I will ever do in the future. You know, the beauty of that statement, it did the same thing 2,000 years ago before Michael Rakes was ever even thought of or ever existed in this world. My sins were already covered in the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. And, and so we have this sacrifice that is amazing that no priest in the old system could offer that covers not just the past sins, but the sins that are future. And his sacrifice is sufficient. It is complete. It is final. Why? Because we pointed out last week the words on the cross was not it started, but it is 
finished. And so when the work is done, you get to sit down. And so Christ gets to sit down because his work is finished. It is sufficient. But let me show you. Here's the, uh, the second layer of this onion. There's another reason that he sits and everybody stands. Because if you are familiar with the, the, the temple or the tabernacle of the Old Testament, and don't worry if not because we're really going to hit it hard next week. We're going to talk about all the furniture that's in the temple and the tabernacle. We're going to talk about all that stuff. But you know what there's not in there? There's no place for a priest to sit down. There are, there are tables, and there are lampstands, and there are altars, but there's only one seat. And all of the temple, and all the instructions that Moses was given, and all the instructions that he was given about the tabernacle, and that David built, or, or the, the temple, or excuse me, not David, Solomon built the temple, and even the second temple, there was only one seat in the whole temple structure. And it was on the Ark of the Covenant. It was within the holies of holies, and you may know it as the mercy seat of God. Right? So when the, when the priest, who was the only one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one day a year, he was only allowed to go in there once a year, when he was allowed to go in, there was only one seat in the whole place, and it was the mercy seat of God. For them, that was the throne of God. Now, they didn't really think that God sat on that throne, but that was symbolic. That's where God sat. This was his throne on earth. And so I can tell you right now, there wasn't a priest alive who would dare sit down on that throne. Because to do that would be to claim divinity for yourself. To do that would be the epitome of blasphemy. It would be to make yourself the object of worship that you came in to worship and then you claim it for yourself. There is no priest who would ever sit down in the one seat that was available because they were so insufficient in doing that. You see, but the problem that that's not a problem for Jesus. Why? Because He can claim that seat. Because He is divine. Because He is the God who gave the instructions for the mercy seat. He rightfully can claim to sit in the one and only seat in the whole temple. And so listen to me. His sacrifice is sufficient not only because He's the sinless Savior, but also because He's the divine God who created the whole system to start with. And He proves it when He sits in this place of God and He sits in, and He claims this mercy seat. You see, it's not just that he was a good human being that died for a good cause. He is the God of the universe, the object of our worship, who claims his authority and his divinity by claiming the only seat in the whole worshiping center of it all, the mercy seat. And he says that my reason for, or excuse me, the reason my sacrifice is sufficient is because I am the only one who can settle my own wrath. I am the only one who can settle the only uh, the judgment that is being poured out on you. But see, there's one other reason why this seat was significant. And if we go back to verse 8, so we've got it significant because it's done. We've got it significant because, uh, because he's divine and it's the only seat there. But I've I got to share with you one other thing. And this is the last layer of the onion because this is something that we just oversee and we don't think about because we're not first century Jews. But in chapter 8, verse 1, it's very specific where he sits down at. Right? In chapter 8, verse 1, he doesn't just sit anywhere. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Right? And when we think of right hand, we, or somebody sitting on the right hand, we think of that as the place of honor. We think that's the place of strength. Okay? And we, there, that is true. All of that is true. We get that from the Old Testament. We see that in kind of uh, culture that, that sitting on the right hand of someone is significant. Right? But for first century Jews... This held a huge, 
huge significance because it wasn't necessarily just power and authority they were looking for. It's something else. You see, for them, the government or the ruling body or, or the judge of their town and their whole religious system wasn't necessarily the priest. It was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this group that every town had their small Sanhedrins, and, and then every, the, the whole nation had this one grand or great Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrins were the jurors. All right? They were the judges and the jurors. And so if, if you were accused of something, whether it be a theological or whether it be uh, civil or whether it be criminal, if you were accused of something, you were hauled to stand before the Sanhedrin. Right? And the Sanhedrin could be 24 men. If it was local, it could be 71 men. If it was the, grand, uh, uh, the great Sanhedrin. But you were called to stand before them. And you had to give your reasons of why you were not guilty. And you had to plead your case in front of this group of men. Right? Now here's where I'm going with this. Because this group of men who were going to determine your fate, whether it be life or death or punishment or innocence, or you were acquitted or you were guilty, these men that were going to determine this had two scribes. Two. They had one that sat on their right side and one that sat on their left side. Here's the beauty of this passage. You see, these two men had two very different jobs because of where they sat. You see, the one on the left wrote down the guilty verdicts. The one on the left wrote down the punishments that you were going to be handed. And so if you came and, and you were standing in front of the Sanhedrin and you plead their case and then they had their little kind of courtroom session and then all of a sudden they, they make their decision and the, and the, the, the clerk on the left or the, the, the scribe on the left, if he gets up and he hands you a piece of paper, this is guilty. This is your punishment. This is what you've done. And you're guilty, and you've been found guilty, and here's the punishment that's going to follow. And some of that punishment was death. And sometimes that punishment was less severe, but this was it. You see, that's the job of the guy who sits on the left. That's not the job of the guy who sits on the right. You see, the man on the left, he writes the guilty verdicts. But the guy on the right, you know what his job is? He writes the acquittals. He writes the not guilty verdicts. The man on the right is the one that when you're coming in and you're hoping maybe this case is going to go my way, maybe it's not, this is the man that you want to hand you your piece of paper because when this man, the man on the right, hands you a piece of paper, you are clean and you are free. And it says you are acquitted of all charges. You are not guilty of anything that you've been accused of. And guess what? You are free to walk out of this room. And there is no punishment for you. You see, there's significance to Jesus sitting on the right hand of the throne. Because we have this Jesus who sits on the right hand of the throne because He is the only one that can provide the sinless Savior. He's the only one that can provide this, this sufficient sacrifice. But He's the only one who can do it from a divine seat because He's the one who writes the acquittals. He's the one who sits to the right of the judge. And this divine sinless Savior who sacrifices is so sufficient. It is our acquittal. And we get the note that we get to go Go home scot-free. Not because we earned it or deserved it, but because the man that sits on the right is the high priest forever because he's already taken our punishment for us. You see, he goes on and tells us there's a second reason his, that his ministry is superior. It's not just the seat that he has, but it's the place that that seat is. It is the sanctuary that he gets to serve in. 
And so we, we see this, uh, he briefly describes this in verse 2, but I'm going to tell you we're not going to spend a ton of time on this because we really, he really covers this in a good chunk in, in chapter 9, so I don't want to spoil that for you, so you'll come back next week and hear um, chapter 9. But in verse 2, he kind of introduces this, and he says that Jesus, as a minister of the sanctuary in the true tabernacle that was set up by the, by the Lord and not man... So reading that verse, you already know that he's talking about this, this tabernacle, this, this sanctuary that's superior to what we see and what we have on earth. And then I love it because then he does exactly what he did with the whole seat thing. He gives us reasons why this tabernacle is superior, why this sanctuary is superior. And the first reason is because who serves there. Right? So back up with me to chapter 7, verse 28. And there's this contrast again that he's building of who works in one tabernacle and who works in the other. And so verse 28 of chapter 7 says, For the law appoints a high priest, men who are weak. But the promise of the oath which comes after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. This word weak is used more times in the book of Hebrews than any other book in the Bible. Right? It's used four times in the book of Hebrews. Twice before this, once here, and once we'll get to um, in chapter 11. So it's used, and when it describes weak, it's really not what we think of in terms of they just don't have strength. Right? When we think of weak, we think of somebody that's not strong. We, th- we think of somebody who who's, uh, lacks an, a strength. But when the writer of Hebrew uses it, he really uses it to kind of describe our limitations as humans. Right? That we are weak because there's only certain things that we can do. We are within flesh, and in this flesh, we cannot be more than one place at a time. Within this flesh, we can only do certain things. Right? Those things make us weak when we compare them to the Son, to the perfected Son, who doesn't have those limitations. Those things make us weak when we compare ourselves to the God who is beyond anything that we can imagine, the God who we are overwhelmed by. And so there's physical and spiritual limitations that we have in this physical body that don't apply to God. And so he describes us as weak, not because we don't have strength, but because we lack abilities that he has in our current bodies are not capable of ministering or even at this point entering into the heavenly sanctuary that he serves in. All right? And so for some of us, you're in my Wednesday night class, and we've talked about this idea of the rapture, and we talked about this idea in, in uh, uh, 2 Corinthians where he talks about in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you will be changed. That's preparing us to enter the sanctuary that He now serves in. That we are not physically able and ready to enter into. Right? So that, that's a little preview for you guys that are coming on Wednesday night. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Right? But there's a second reason. It's not just who ministers in that. But it's simply this. This sanctuary that He serves in, it's the real thing. It is not an image it is the real thing. And so I want you to, to think about this. The priest, and he's talking about this in verse 5. The priest and the temple and all this stuff that we see on earth. Here's how he describes it in verse 5. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly thing as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful and make everything according to the pattern that you, that you were shown on the mountain. Right? So understand that when Moses went up on the mountain, God gave him all these instructions, gave him all these things, and he said, go make this tabernacle exactly like I showed you. Right? This is the pattern that I want my people to see. And did you notice the word that he used to describe it? This is, uh, uh, um, see, I lost my word there for a second. This is um, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Right? Now, I don't know if, uh, 
about you, but I love to be out in the backyard on a bright, sunny day, and yesterday was just beautiful. And just so we're clear, I, I'm not praying for snow today. There is like an 8% chance of it this afternoon, but I'm not praying for that, okay? Just so we're clear, I'm going to let it rest because it's Super Bowl Sunday. But anyway, I really did enjoy yesterday, and it was just this beautiful, sunny day to get outside. And, and one of the things that always kind of gets me is if you're outside... And all of a sudden, a shadow just kind of goes over you, right? When that happens, I don't know many people that just watch the shadow, all right? Now, most of us know if something, if some shadow goes over you, what's most of our first reactions? We're looking for whatever caused that shadow, right? It may be a bird. At my house, it may be a bat. It may be a ball. It may be some frisbee that the kids have thrown. And so I'm looking for whatever object caused that shadow. I'm not looking at the shadow because, let's be honest... I don't think the shadow is going to hurt me. Whatever caused the shadow may hurt me, all right? Whether it be the hawk that's been around our house or whether it be a frisbee or whatever it is. And so immediately when I see a shadow cross my path or, or see it uh, on the ground, I immediately start looking up and I start looking for whatever it is caused that shadow, right? Understand, this is what God is telling you the purpose of the tabernacle and the purpose of the temple was. This was not to be the end-all, do-all. This was not to be the complete, the permanent residence of God. And this was not how everything was going to be. It had one purpose. It was the shadow. And it was to look, get you to look at something that was bigger and better. To get you to look at what God really created and not to lose sight. But the problem with the people of Israel is they started staring at the shadow instead of looking for the real thing. They became satisfied with this dark spot, this shadow, this pattern on the ground instead of seeking after the real sanctuary that's heavenly. And so what he tells them in this book of Hebrews is, listen, the, the, the shadow is there and the shadow served a purpose, but the purpose of the shadow was not the shadow. It was to get you to look at something else because let's be honest, a shadow doesn't exist on its own. It has no self-existence. Without another object, there is no shadow. And so don't be satisfied with the temple and the tabernacle you have here. Look to something bigger. Look to the priest that can actually save you, the one who is perfect. Look to the heavenly sanctuary, to the Jesus that serves there. Because according to verse 6, because he does that, he now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he's the mediator of a better covenant, which is legally enacted on better promises. You see, the first thing he tells us about Jesus is that he has a superior ministry. And the second thing is that he has a better covenant, a superior covenant. Now, covenant's one of those church words we use, right? Some of you may have grew up in church and you've heard the word covenant. And for some of you, you have no idea what a covenant is. It sounds bad, so you don't want anything to do with it. But a superior covenant, a covenant is just simply a promise. It, it's really an agreement. You are locked into covenants all the time. I don't know if you know that or not, but you have covenants all over the place, right? Anytime you get a loan, you make an agreement to pay that back, right? If you are married, you are in a covenant, Okay, you are in an agreement. If if you are in any kind of relationship with any person, uh, whether it be business or, or church or anything like that, you are in this agreement together. Right? So you're in these things. You may not call them covenants. We don't use that word very often, but we're in these things. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are lots of covenants. God makes lots of promises and lots of agreements with humans. Right? All the way back to uh, the covenant with Noah. Some of you are familiar with that. The reason we have the, the rainbow is because there's this promise that's made that he will never destroy the world again by a flood. 
Now, is he going to destroy the world again? Absolutely. Read the end of the story, okay? We'll get to that. Come to Wednesday night. We'll talk about how that all ends, right? But it's not going to be by flood. Why? Because he promised it wasn't going to be. There's a covenant there. There's an agreement there. Right? He makes a covenant with Abraham that Abraham, even though he doesn't have children, will look up and he'll see all the stars in the sky. And he says, listen, you're going to have as many descendants as all these stars in the skies and all these sand on the sand shore. There's a promise there. There's an agreement there. Right? He goes on to Moses and he makes this covenant with Moses. And here's the difference with the Moses covenant. It is conditional. If, if you will follow my laws... I'm going to give you ten of them, Moses. If you will follow these ten commandments, if these people will follow these ten commandments, they will go to the promised land. They will inherit this land that I promised Abraham. If they don't, they don't get in. But if they do, if they do, they will get this. And so there's this agreement. And and so for the people of Israel, even in the first century, Moses lived 1,400 years before they did, maybe even a little bit more than that. This is the covenant they're still in. And so this is the covenant they're holding on to. This is the covenant he refers to in verse 9 when he says that he made with their ancestors on the day that he took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And they loved this covenant. They loved it and they held on to it because there was comfort in this thing that's 1,400 years old. There's comfort in knowing that I don't have to try something new because guess what? It happened yesterday, happened the day before, happened the day before, and I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and it's going to be the same thing over and over and over and over again. And so we get comfortable. The problem is we're not satisfied with that. Why? Because that covenant was never meant to be the end-all, do-all. There is this other covenant that's coming. And so the writer of Hebrews really uses the prophet of Jeremiah to convince them, hey, this new covenant, this new agreement with God is coming, and it's far better than the one you have now. Because the one you have now... In fact, it's already been broken. And in fact, it's not even going to last as long as you think it is. And so there are four things that to note about this new covenant. I promise you I'm going to move through these four things very quickly because I'm not going to carry over another outline. Um, we're, we're going to finish these four things. So the first one is this is a covenant from above. right? And we see this uh, for two major reasons. First one, it's a covenant that God establishes. He sets this. right? Look at me in verse 8. He says, But finding fault with his people, he says, Look, the days are coming when the Lord, or excuse me, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So notice, this is God speaking. And he says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this covenant. The reason they need a new covenant is because the old covenant was broken. Because the old one, the, the people disregarded, they didn't follow it. And God says, listen, I'm going to make a new one. And I'm going to do this. Now, there's another reason that this is from above. And this is the, some we don't get in the English language because we just use the word covenant. But in the, in the Greek, and even the Hebrew idea, there are different types of covenants. Right? There's the kind of covenants we talked about just a moment ago that are between two equal parties. Right? So when you get married, you enter into a covenant, a, a legally binding and ethically binding agreement. And it's between two people. There's a Greek word for that. Okay. Uh, when you do a business deal, um, there's negotiations that happen. And so you enter this agreement on equal terms. And so when, when you have a, a covenant or an agreement between two equals, you get to negotiate those terms. You get to talk about, I'll do this and you do that. I'll pay you this much for this car and I'll do this and you do. You get to negotiate those things. You see, but that's not the Greek word that's used in this passage. The Greek word that's used in this passage is a covenant from a superior to an inferior. 
right? It's from one that's way above to those that are undeserving of it. It's an agreement from the top down, right? It's not between two equals. It is from a superior party to an inferior party. And when you have that type of agreement, there is no negotiation. You don't get to set the terms and you don't get to negotiate the terms of this type of contract or this type of agreement. We don't get to bargain. We don't get to negotiate. We simply have one choice. We either accept it as it is or we reject it. That is all there is. So what does that have to do with you and me? It has to do with this because some of us are trying to negotiate our way into heaven. Some of us are trying to negotiate a life with Christ instead of just accepting His terms that He laid out in the contract and we just don't get to do that. We either accept it as it is or we reject it. Some of us are, are we're trying to negotiate how much of Jesus can I get without getting all of Him. We're, we're trying to live this idea that, that I can negotiate and I can get the Savior part without the Lord part and it doesn't work that way because the contract's not written that way. We don't get to negotiate that way. What we do is we get to accept Him as Savior, as Lord, and as King because that is, the that is the contract. That's what's presented to us. And we don't get to negotiate the difference between those two. We don't get to show up for church and act like we don't want to. We don't get to show up for church on Sunday and act like we don't do church the rest of the week. That's not what the contract says. The contract says, I give you everything thing. Why? Because I already gave you everything. The contract is not that we give Him part of our life, that we give Him all of our life. Why? Because He gave everything for us. We don't get to hold back and we don't get to choose parts of our life that we hold on to. and We don't get to say, hey, this part's off limits to you, God. And we don't get to do that. Why? Because the terms of His contract is it's all or nothing. And we don't get to negotiate that. Second thing that's important about this is that it has internal application. I want you to look with me in verse 10. I told you I was going to get these done. So here we go. Verse 10 says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. You see what he's doing is he's, he's setting up this contrast between the covenant he made with Moses and the one he's making through Christ. And here's the beauty of it. Some of you remember the covenant that he made with Moses. Where was it written? On stone tablets. These, this covenant he made, these ten commandments that he made, he put them on stone tablets and Moses broke them and then they get rewritten. And then those stone tablets, are, are, are in, they're encased in the Ark of the Covenant and those things stay in one place. That's it. They don't move out of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant can move when they need to move the whole tabernacle, but they don't move. They are stationary. And so what, he's, what I'm telling you is the covenant he made with Israel in, the, in Moses, it's all external. But the one he makes with us, it's all internal. Because I want you to notice what he says. I will write them into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. You see, the covenant He makes with us is not a stone tablet that's in a box in a tabernacle somewhere. It is a, it's a covenant and agreement that affects our mind and affects the hearts of the people that accept it. It doesn't just change our behavior. It changes our desires. It changes our ambitions. It transforms our thought. You see, the reason that the priests had to keep offering sacrifices over and over and over again is because people kept sinning over and over and over again. And i got to tell you, it wasn't just a sin problem. It wasn't just a behavior problem. It was a heart problem. Can I share with you something about the world we live in today? It's not a political problem. 
It's not a racial problem. It's not an equality problem. It's a heart problem. Why? Because we didn't accept the conditions of the agreement that he had. Because if we did, he would erode it on our hearts. And our hearts would be transformed. And when our hearts and our thoughts are transformed, that our behaviors quickly follow those things. See, we didn't accept the covenant. And we didn't allow God to write these on our hearts and on our minds. And so you want a prayer for our nation? It's not that your party wins the next election. You want a prayer for our nation? It's not that, that there's equality. The biggest prayer of our nation is simply that our hearts are in, come back to God. In a moment, we're going to sing this song. And it's simply this prayer of, Here's my heart. Speak words of truth. Greatest prayer you're ever going to pray is that prayer. Here's my heart. God, speak your words of truth to it. Write them on my heart so that it changes everything about my life. And not just me, but everybody sitting in this building, everybody watching online, everybody I'll come in contact with tomorrow, and everybody I'll never come in contact with throughout the rest of this world. God, speak words of truth to them. Write it on their heart. The third thing he says is there's this personal presentation that Christ is the mediator and he grants access. We saw it uh, in verse 10. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Notice, He's writing. God is doing this. It's not the church. It's not the priest. It's not the pastor. It's not the Levites. None of that. This is coming from God directly. And we see it again in verse 11. For each person will not teach his fellow citizens and each of his brothers saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them you see they'll all know him because it's not held within a certain structure it's not held within a certain elite priesthood it's not held in a certain tabernacle where nobody has access to it is given through christ in fact it matches what he says in first timothy chapter 2 verse 5 it says therefore there is one god and one mediator between god and humanity jesus christ himself human there is access that we get to God through Christ that we get nowhere else. And finally, in verse, or the last one is that it brings us forgiveness forever. I want you to see in verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 12 says, I will be merciful to their wrongdoings, and I will never again remember their sins. You see, here's the beauty of this. Your forgiveness and my forgiveness doesn't depend on a priesthood. Your forgiveness and my forgiveness doesn't depend on a temple or a sanctuary or even on the sacrifices of animals. It depends on His mercy. It depends on His grace. It depends on Him doing what He says He will do and not remembering our sins forever. In verse 13, By saying a new covenant, He has declared that the first is old, and what is old is aging and about to disappear. See, the beauty of that, that verse 13 is that he's writing this before 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., the Jewish system disappeared. In 70 A.D., the Romans had had enough of the Jews. They'd had enough of all the rebellions. They'd had enough of these little skirmishes that were happening. And so they finally came down with all their military authority and with all their might. And whether it was you can think it's good or bad, whatever you want to, but this was it. In 70 A.D., the, the leader of the Roman army walked in and he slaughtered a pig on the altar of Israel. Now, if you know Israel, they don't do pigs. 
That's an unclean animal. And so to slaughter an animal that's unclean on the most holy thing there is defiles the whole thing. This altar will never again be used for sacrifices. And he did it for days and weeks. He slaughtered a pig on that altar every single day. And the people got so mad they rebelled against him. You know what he did? He destroyed the entire tabernacle or the entire temple and some of you are familiar with Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus is looking at the temple and he says there's coming a day that not one of these stones will be on top of another it happened in 70 AD that there was not a stone that was left stacked on top of each other because the Roman military said I'm done with these Jewish people and I'm done with their rebellions and so now I'll wipe you completely out so what does that have to do with you and me it means that our forgiveness doesn't depend on a tabernacle or a temple or a sacrificial system. And what he's trying to tell the people who are living in first century Israel is, listen, if your forgiveness is tied to these things, you need to find a new forgiveness because your system isn't going to be around much longer. Since 70 A.D., there has not been a high priest in Israel. Since 70 AD, there has not been a temple on the temple grounds in Israel. Since 70 AD, there has not been a sacrifice that has happened on the temple grounds at all. And so if your forgiveness only is tied to those things, to this old system, then we are in desperate, dark trouble because it hasn't happened since 70 AD. And it's not going to happen again until we are gone when the rapture happens and we're out of here. So I want to share this with you. The conditions of the contract are not ours to make. They're simply ours to reject. And the conditions is this. There is a sinless divine Savior who has a superior ministry and a superior covenant and is based on His mercy and His grace. It's based on His personal presentation to you. The here it is. It is one that is written on the hearts and minds and not on stones that have been busted and broken and we don't even, don't even know where they exist. And it's the only one that's really open to you at this point. Because it's the only one that God has made available. And so the question for you and the question for me is not do we like it? It's not do we feel good about it? It's not do we want to negotiate it? It is simply this. Are you going to accept it? Or are you going to reject it? In Christ, there is no middle ground. There is no negotiation The old has passed away and new things have come. And you either accept it or you reject it. Like I said, the band's going to come up and we're going to pray. And then the band's going to come and we're going to sing this song together. And the song is, Here's My Heart. And it's this invitation for God to write His terms on your heart. It is this invitation that, that you agree to. And you are saying, God, here I am. I am asking you to do what you said you would do. And I'm opening my heart for you to write on it. To speak these words of truth. Truth is not always easy. Truth hurts and truth stings and it steps on our toes and sometimes we don't like it at all. But it doesn't stop being truth because we don't like it. It doesn't stop being truth because we get to negotiate it. Why? Because the terms are set and we either accept it or we reject it. Which will you do this morning? Let's pray together.